Oh, it's Denise from Woman Beyond a Certain Age. I've moved into my hyper ADD mood because, it, it, like, no one knows that. Because my dear friend Sandra Gutierrez is here with her opus of a new cookbook. And when I say that, I'm not being silly. It's called Latinissimo. If you don't know about it yet, I, I'm hoping you'll learn from this podcast. Hello, Sandra. Hello, Denise. How are you? I'm so good. Honey, I have to say a few nice things about your book and then we'll, then I want you to talk. Okay. Now, you and I, you've been on the podcast before. We were just finishing up the last podcast and you said you were working on your new book. Okay. And now that's been at least a year, but I know this book has been in development for a while. If people haven't seen anything about it yet, I need them to understand this is a book about, and I will also give them some of your credentials, home recipes from the 21 countries of Latin America. I mean, this is no small potatoes, honey. This is a big deal. And the book is magnificent and I love it, Sandra. And I know if people don't know who you are, though, whenever I, friends of mine that have written such, it's like Grace Young. I feel the same way. I feel like saying to people, what do you live under a rock? How could you not know who these women are if you like to cook? Um, I know you because you are a journalist, you're a food historian, you're a cookbook author, and you're a cooking teacher. So all those things have come together. But what I really want to know from you is how did you ever sign up for a book this big and not be afraid? That's what I want to know. Because <laughs> it's magnificent. But it's And I'll read a couple of little pieces from it in a few minutes and talk about a few recipes. But please tell us how this process happened. So thank you very much for saying that about the book. I really oh. appreciate it. I uh, first thought that I wanted to write this book many, many, many years ago. And when I first got signed by my agent, Lisa Ekas, uh, and I told her that this was the book I wanted to write, she said, Sandra, publishers aren't ready. They're not ready for this. It's You're going to scare them away. Let's, let's work towards this book because they're not used to seeing anything past Mexico. And we're talking about 15, 16 years ago, right? Yep. Um, but I had already done decades of research on this book that I wanted to write. And so I told her, okay, then when, you know how she asks you to do your mission statement at the beginning? Yeah. Yes. And I told her, well, my mission statement is very simple. I'm going to try to break the stereotypes that tie Latin cooking together so I can publish this book one day. And that's what I've spent the last, 15 years doing through classes, through articles, through other books that I've written, is trying to open the door really, really wide so that people don't see Latin American food only as um, monolithic, as only being Mexican and that's it. Because Mexican cuisine is a it's, it's an international treasure. It really is phenomenal. And it's as complex as Chinese food is, which uh, we did not know was that complex until people started writing books about it. But like I say at the beginning of the book, and it's something I've told my students for years, Latin American food is like a big house. And Mexican food is the front door. And it's the one that most of us are 
familiar with before anything else. Everybody recognizes tacos and enchiladas and moles. And the more people have discovered a Mexican cuisine, they can now know regionalities and foods like, uh, you know, um, chiles in escabeche, things like that, that are important. Pasta, fajitas, and the normal things that you have in restaurants every day. People are becoming much more educated. But once you cross over that threshold of Mexican cuisine, I say you enter into this house and there are 20 other rooms and each room of them is a kitchen and they're all different. And they all came about by different amalgamations and combinations of peoples from around the world. And they have produced amazing cuisines that are just as exciting and different as Mexican cuisine is. Perfectly said. If people, I have to tell you, Sandra, so many things. I just love what you wrote. And I love that you repeated that to me. Thank you. Because I read that and I thought that makes it so easy thinking about crossing over the threshold of a house. So here I am. I get AARP magazine. Of course I do, because <laughs> I'm 200 years old. And what's in it? This, the, our audience can't see it, but you can see it. Oh, What's in it? Do you know this yet? I, I hadn't seen it. Okay. Oh, honey. I, and I'll send you my copy if you want to. So you have oh, an Thank you. I'd love right. that. I read, and this one has Henry Winkler on the cover in case people are um, interested. But I get AARP. It's a great little magazine. They always have something. They always have interesting articles, you know, and it's about people that have probably more time now than they may have ever had in their life to cook or learn something new or to read. Okay, so I turned to this double page and it says up front, eat, and it says Latin American comfort food, soups, excuse me, Latin American, Latin American comfort soups. Those are not difficult words, Sandra. I just can't say them. Well, I'm reading it. It's beautiful and colorful. And I, and it says Mexico, Colombia, Puerto Rico, and Cuba, Brazil, Guatemala. Now I'm reading this thinking, <gasps> People have read Sandra. I'm almost at the computer to write a letter saying, how dare you, how dare you. I finally read the rest of the article. And at the bottom, it says, Sandra Gutierrez, an award-winning cookbook author, her newest book, Latinismo, Home Recipes from 21 Countries of Latin America, just came out. So it's wonderful, Sandra. It's a beautiful layout. And I'll tell you, to me, what was great about it and why I bring it up in this, though here you're with us, it's an absolutely wonderful encapsulation of what you're trying to say. Do you know what I mean? So here there are different soups, all of them beautiful, all of them that people want to make. And honey, it was just, it was so beautiful to see. And then you go on to talk about some salsa four ways. So I will send you my copy, but it was really fun to see. Oh, thank you very much. I'm glad you enjoyed it. You know, I really love people's reaction when they start seeing the other cuisines, especially when you have photos and when you have recipes, because it's this aha moment of, oh, this isn't as strange as I thought it would be, or I this is relatable to me for this reason. And I just, I get such a thrill from that because that's the point is Latin American cuisine is not as foreign as people imagine it can be because there are so many different world cuisines that have shaped each one of those that you can find some recipe that's similar to something you've had before so that you don't have to take this 
enormous leap of faith in thinking, what am I going to eat? You know, but you realize that maybe if you love minestrones, you will find a menestra in, in Argentina that's similar, you know, or if you like stir fries, you will find the lomo saltado in Peru, which is similar and so on and so forth. And I love that. In your book, I'm going to read this one tiny couple of sentences. You wrote, I come from a culture rich with recipes that have survived the test of time through conquest, mass immigration, industrialization, modernization, totalitarian, oh, I'm never going to pronounce that, but you know what I mean. Dictatorship. Thank you. Thank you. Dictatorships, dispersions, and globalization. Well, Ain't that the truth? The culinary techniques that shape the food of Latin America all the way into the 21st century make it ideal for the modern kitchen because they are familiar methods to most cook and are very easy to learn. Well, that dispels any fears anyone should have to me. Do you know what I mean? And I do think this, Sandra, I don't think that, and I'm sure in your classes you've seen this, I don't think people often realize what wars and migration and all these things have done to our food chain. Do you know what I mean? I mean, that's, and it's not just us in America, it's all over the world. Exactly. Phenomenal. It's amazing. Food is always in flux. It never stops changing. It never stops adapting. And um, yes, the classics are definitely important. There are classics in every single world cuisine and those serve as a base from which we learn and from which our cuisines develop but it does not mean that food hasn't changed so for instance if you look at french cuisine and we start with a food base like mirepoix that will still be for those uh, of your listeners who don't know mirepoix is a combination of carrots onions and celery that is used as a base in many many probably most of french cuisine uh, uh, recipes and Um, That doesn't mean that you cannot develop a new recipe that has world influences. And I'm going to tell you a simple one. Without Latin American potatoes, we would not have any recipes in France a la Parmentier. Because all the recipes developed with potatoes were named, uh, the classic French recipes, were named after this scientist, Parmentier, who was a prisoner in a Polish jail during one of the wars and he discovered that there was all these nutritious uh, benefits to eating potatoes which only the prisoners were given because they were thought to be poisonous so when he leaves the, the the prison he begins by bringing food back to France and and the people were starving in France and he opened the first soup kitchens and the first soup kitchens were serving potato based soups i'm sure those soups had a base of mirepoix to give it some flavor but it doesn't mean that you cannot develop new recipes that's why every potato recipe that's a classic in france has the name of this man a la parmentier i never knew that i love that thank you i've made potatoes a million times when i was in school i never knew that there you go that's fantastic. You know, I was very lucky, Sandra, and this is why I think I'm enjoying your book so much. When I worked for Holland America, they would the world cruise went all around. And I got to go on the world cruise and we'd start, you know, they'd fly me to Shanghai. I got it was a wonderful gig. 
But one year they said, Denise, our grand voyage is South America this year. Would you like to go? And I thought, oh, yeah, I guess so. And I was excited because they flew me to, but I, because I'd already been through the, um, you know, through the locks, the Panama Canal. I'd been to to Central America many times, loved the food in Central America, loved it. But I thought, oh, and you know, it just, it all looks so big to me. I think I was overwhelmed by the thought of South America to be perfectly yeah. honest. And then they flew me to Peru where I ate some of the most delicious food I've eaten in my life. And I also got to go to um, Machu Picchu and Cusco, Cusco at the base of Machu Picchu has gorgeous restaurants. And these are chefs that are really changing their, you know, the image of Peruvian food, but very fresh, just very fresh, delicious, lively flavor. And then I got to go all the way around, you know, the horn of, of South America, all the way to Buenos Aires. And that's when I knew Sandra, that there were some similarities, but the differences and what, immigration had done to South American food when, you know, which is always the way it is. And it was so fascinating. And the food was so delicious. I, I saw those pictures of your trip. I love seeing the pictures that you put of that trip because I, I love it that you took into account the people. And so you, you have a lot of pictures with the people of the place. Oh, and Peru, so I think, is one of the most exciting food places that we have in Latin America because they were, uh, uh, their cuisine is an amalgamation of the food of the Incas, of course, and the indigenous groups that were there, but also African influence, Chinese influence, Japanese influence, Hakka influence, Middle Eastern influence, and of course, Spanish influence. And they all converged together and they, you get the best of each one of those cultures on the plate. And yes. so- you can be in Lima and you can be eating um, fried rice. You know, they call it uh, chaufa. And uh, just like in any house, they'll be eating chaufa just like they would in China. And then you go uh, to another city and you go to Quito and you're having something Nikkei, which is maybe a, a tiradito Nikkei, which means almost like a sushi with a, uh, a sauce made with um, Peruvian ajíes or chile. So it's a spicy sauce, but with Japanese influences and so on and so forth. So it's 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 one of the most vibrant cuisines I think Latin America has. And the reason that it's being so celebrated is that the young chefs, just like you said, are really, really impulsing Peruvian flavors outside of their country. But they remain faithful and proud of their cuisines. The mistake that I see with a lot of the young chefs in many Latin American countries right now is the same mistake I saw in many of the North American chefs back in the 80s, where we were getting away from French cuisine being the top cuisine. And they started making all these very fancy fusions and, and they were not going back to their roots. I don't think the Americans felt like they had a regional cuisine until they really settled and studied the cuisine of the South in the 90s and, and in the early 2000s. And they realized, oh, we have really good food that's naturally American that we don't have to do things to. And that's what's happening with Peruvian chefs. They're actually exporting real food that yes. they make. And uh, they're not having to reinvent it so much because there's so much there to discover. So much. And it's a beautiful country if people have the opportunity. Uh, honey, and then when I got to Chile, I 
of course, seeing it, seeing it from the ship at first, it looks like the coast of California. Okay. Yeah. It looks, and the wine that they grow there is, is, I remember we had a meal, it was utterly delicious. Um, and I have notes on it, but I kept saying to some, whoever I was with, I said, I could be eating in Topanga Canyon. You know what I mean? I could be eating in Malibu. This food is so fresh. And so they bear in this particular restaurant, they barely touched it. They put flavors of chili in it, meaning the country, but Sandra, they didn't fool around with it. They just left it to be vibrant. It was remarkable. Yeah. Chilean food is very European centric. Yeah. And very, uh, very Germanic also. So you yeah. have the, the best of Spain, the best of Germany, uh, also Eastern European countries like Hungary and Czechoslovakia, yeah. all these flavors that come. So it's a very elegant cuisine, even home so, cooking. It's very sophisticated cuisine. People don't think of that. Chile is very sophisticated. Yeah. You know, and people don't know that. You don't always know these things unless you get to travel. Um, and I think you said it perfectly. And I know you've said it in your book. People are just thinking rice and beans. And that's, be you know, that's who they are. Do you know what I mean? People don't think out. They're not looking at the bigger picture most of the time. Um, the first time I went to Africa, I'm eating this beautiful, beautiful uh, camp. It was, a, but it had a full restaurant. We were on safari, but had a restaurant. And when the plate came out from the table, I looked down with the people I was with and I said, this is Indian food. And you just knew that it came directly. Do you know what I mean? The spice trail came directly from India down to the coast of Africa. And they had all fused their food and it was utterly delicious. Yeah. And I think uh, people don't know how to think of food in, in other countries, but I, 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 sort of put the blame on that on what I call the National Geographic Syndrome. Okay. And it's because National Geographic and the magazines that came talking about foreign countries made it seem so native, so exotic, so um, weird and rare and strange that <laughs> that is one of the things that I kept telling my agents. I kept saying, I need to break that idea of a national national geographic syndrome because even when they and i met together with publishers and i'm not going to mention any names but <laughs> i remember one particular meeting in la with a very big um, editor and he said to me well i would be interested in this book if you were willing to um get into a jeep and drive all through latin america and uh, you know, sleeping a sleeping bag. And I looked at him and I said, you know what? Two things. One, I'm not going to do that because I'd be lucky to survive. <laughs> Who knows with the dangerous things in Latin America that are going now in the 2000s that were not going on in the 60s when Diana Kennedy was doing the same thing in Mexico. One. And two, you've picked the wrong person for this because I am not looking for that weird iguana recipe from the jungle, tropical jungle of Guatemala. I want Americans and the world wide over to learn to cook what people, their contemporaries are cooking today and to explain why Latin Americans eat what they eat today, not some weird thing that you want to popularize and shock. It's not shock value. Yes, that's right. You, honey, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to have been a fly on the wall when he, you know, and this is, 
Sandra, because, and you're, I agree with everything you said, but this is also because that's what TV has made popular. Yeah. You know, it's made going everywhere and doing everything. And it, it, it's 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 very fun for a travel ideas and stuff, but that's not what home cooks are doing. Yeah, it's even here, even here in the United States, you can go to restaurants, but then, I mean, you can go to an Italian restaurant here, but then visit a real Italian American family, and the recipes are completely different from when you're being served at, you know, Magianos for as much it's, as I that could not be more, more correct. I wanted to read one other thing, which just is what you had just was saying. I want to dare you to feel comfortable finding the difference between each cuisine, not just the similarity. Because at Latin Americans, as Latin Americans, we celebrate diversity. Each of our food is as different from the others as our music, our histories, our language, our stories, and of course, our countries. Now. I'm sorry, that's brilliant <laughs> because it's it's brilliant because it's true. And you know, I, I love that you equate it. And I have to tell you, Sandra, I'll just digress for a minute because then I want to talk about a couple of these recipes. I just got back from, I went to a writer's workshop in, uh, out in Tuscany. Now I've been to Italy a dozen times, be, uh, all around Italy because my grandparents were Italian. My father was born in Italy. You know, but we're San Francisco. I always say it, honey, I'm a California Italian. You know, we, <laughs> yeah. we, though I certainly have studied Italian food and I, I can make some classic dishes. Again, California crept into our, the California food base crept into our everyday eating. I don't know, honey, until arugula was available in every single market in California. We never ate arugula as kids. Do you know what I mean? My grandfather had a garden, we ate romaine lettuce. So when arugula became this big people, people kept saying to me, oh, arugula, you must know it from being Italian. I said, I just saw it like you did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't know arugula. So, but I went to make the long story short, went to the writer's retreat. It was in a gorgeous winery in um, Tuscany and the wine was good, but the food was terrible Sandra no, no. terrible now and the thing that the reason I love your quote and I'm putting it in my writers group because we've all stayed and think they kept saying oh Denise you're just spoiled you're used to high-end food blah blah that's why you're just part I said oh no 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 and they say oh this is rustic I said no 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 rustic food is a little bit of pasta with olive oil and salt and pepper on it and when it's perfectly cooked it's divine don't tell exactly. rustic is, does not equate to bad food. So I went on my high horse with them. Then when they were, they were, several of them kept saying to me, I don't think you should, you should have complained to the event planner. She was doing her best. I said, no, I've been in food for 40 years. She was being cheap. That's why we got that crappy food. Okay, that's all it was. But this was, <laughs> I waxed poetic and now I'm going to put your paragraph in there. I will give you credit. I said, you know, simple food and the flavors and the techniques of cooking and honoring your craft and honoring the people that eat your food is no different than painting or writing a poem or taking a beautiful photograph. I said, cooking is an art form. And I know one or two of them said to me, I, I live alone. I never cook anything. I thought, well, you're not my market. Exactly. <laughs> you're not my people. You're not my people. But I loved that paragraph that you wrote, Sandra, because it's true. 
It is. It, I, I think that simple food that's made with uh, good ingredients and with an element of respect for tradition is delicious. I can make you a pot of foul tasting beans next to a pot of beans that you would think are amazing. It depends on what you put on it, whether you burn one or you don't, whether you overcook one or you don't, et cetera, you know? So it's, it's a matter of, even if you just take bread, garlic, and olive oil, just a very basic example. It's a very different experience if you take a bread, uh, you know, like Wonder Bread with um, regular olive oil from the store than if you have a loaf of great ciabatta or a great baguette or something and you dip it into extra virgin cold press olive oil and with a little bit of salt. They're both the same ingredients, but they're not the same quality ingredients and it's not the same experience. And I think that that's the reason I wanted to write about home cooking and not about the elevated dishes that exist in restaurants that most people are are recognizing right now from Latin America. And it's because home cooking is truly delicious. It's, but it's simple. It's, it's unassuming and it's food that is easy to make on a week, weekend, weekday basis. And it doesn't require any special technique or any frou-frou kind of ingredient. It's all, they're all things that you can find in your regular supermarket, but it's the care that has been given as to how to prepare them and how to combine certain flavors that creates that comfort food. Because I think home cooking is comforting food. It's your whole upbringing to me. I mean, the whole, sometimes I know, Sandra, I, my husband teases me. I'm sure we finish breakfast and I'll say now to the restaurant today, I always call my kids. I said, the restaurant today for lunch, you have leftovers, a little leftover steak from last night. I put some green beans with it. But I said to me, tonight we are having some street tacos that I, you know, I buy chicken and mix it with black beans. And um, I said, so that's, that's what the menu it's on the menu today. And he says to me with foam from his cappuccino still on his lips, he said, already planning lunch and dinner. But you know what, honey, that was my whole upbringing. That was, of course, that's what comfort is. And in these horrible times of the world, just these black and this black cloud of, over the world, what is more comforting than having something delicious to eat? Yeah, I, I think that particularly when life is hard, uh, you go back to those recipes that, you know, I was saying the other day in DC when I was talking to Michael Twitty for an event. Oh yes, that looked like a fabulous event. It was fun, but I was telling him, Michael, food is the only thing I know that can bring somebody back to us who is no longer there to the point where they feel that they are hugging us. And yes. Like we're having this intimate exchange with our grandmothers or Aunt Clara, whoever made that special soup or that special um, casserole that brings back comfort to us. I don't think you can get that from a painting or from sculpture because it it really it's so intimate, you know. Other than other than 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 making love to someone. You don't have any other activity other than feeding someone where you introduce something you've made into somebody else's body. It's very intimate. And so being able to connect emotionally at that level of love, of trust, of giving of yourself and of the other 
through food is something that nothing else can equate. Beautifully said. Absolutely. When you feel that they are, you said, giving you a hug. When I cook something that I say, and my husband says, this is delicious. I'll say, this is my mama's food. You know, this is exactly, and my mother was, I was saying it the other day, we would get home sometimes. My mother wasn't a baker, Sandra, but God, she could cook. But mm -hmm. so I grew up like when people talk about homemade bread or anything, my mother literally would say, oh, no, we're rich. I went to the bakery. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because she had grown up extremely poor. But I mean, to me still, sometimes when I make brownies and my husband says, God, these are so good. I think, no, they're not as good as the Lady Baltimore brownies from <laughs> with that frosting on top. Because that's what I remember. Yes. Because when it was a bad day or things were going wrong. We'd get home from school and my mother'd say, let's all sit down together. And we'd have a chocolate brownie and a glass of milk. And for some reason, everything was okay. Yeah, my mother didn't cook, but my grandmother did. And I have the same kind of memory. I, My mother used to be one who craved weird things. She <laughs> craved hot dogs from Guatemala that have guacamole on them and sauerkraut. So that is one of my comfort foods because, and I make them here because it's what she used to go get. Let's go to the street and buy these hot dogs that have all these things on them. Or uh, the one thing I couldn't get that my mother loves and she really would get this craving. That's because she was raised in Europe. She had got this craving for caviar and she would have her buttered toast with caviar. And I'm like, I am sorry I have a limit to what I'm going to try. I did try it, but it never made a, an impact in me. Give me the mango salad or give me the black bean soup or give me something like that. That talks to me. But you know, people who are who have survived war, who have survived trauma, they say that one of the things that carry them through is the that the idea that they will once again taste the food that they remember. There's a beautiful book by Viktor Frankl called Man's Search for Meaning. And it, it, it explains why some people can survive terrible, terrible things while others can't, they just can't do it. And, and one of the things that carries people through is this memory of some food or, or something that reminds them of their past, their their moms, their a happy moment. And that can be something that holds you enough, pulls you up enough to make it through to the next morning. So wow. food is very powerful. That makes me cry, Sandra. I, I totally agree. And I had a friend oh, who was dying from AIDS early on in the in the the plague. But I have to tell you the most joy the most joy that I got and he got was I would bring some cold soup or I would bring him some cut mango and would, would sit on the edge of his bed and be, he could still feed himself. But in those moments, we, it was, that bowl of mango was everything. It was his lifeline still to being alive, to trying to be alive in this horrible time. So, and mine too. Do you know what I mean? I became, became that became a food memory for you oh, forever. I had mangoes and the nurses laughed. I had mangoes in the windowsill to ripen. I had mangoes in brown bags. And they'd say to me, Denise, we have fruit flies. I said, Don't worry, I'll take care of it. <laughs> allowed me to bring these mangoes in, which they probably weren't supposed to, but he was in isolation. But no, it was 
it made a difference in both our lives. Food is so important. Now, I want to talk to you about one or two of these beautiful recipes. And then, and also, Sandra, I want to tell you how pretty the artwork is. It's beautiful. I'm I so blessed to have an amazing food photographer, Kevin Miyazaki, for anybody out there that who wants to photograph a book. Oh, he's just and brilliant. How did you I actually found him. Uh, I, I had the opportunity to choose and select whoever I wanted as a photographer. And Sally Eckes reached out to me and she said, listen, while you're looking at all these people, let me send you somebody else's uh, artwork. And when I saw Kevin's, I thought this is exactly what I want. I wanted it to be about the food. I didn't want it to be about me. I didn't want it to be about placemats and flowers. It needed to be about the food. And he can capture that with his camera in a way no one I know can. And so I talked to him and we got on this. He and I understood each other what we wanted. And I'll tell you, it was the most beautiful photo shoot I've ever been in. There was so much love. There was so much understanding at joy in the process never a bad moment it was it was a pleasure and and he is an ultimate gentleman and and an artist that has this vision he can actually match the vision of the person he's working with and and meets you and then he elevates it he's just I cannot say enough good things about him how fabulous and honey when I opened the book and started to look having done this for a long time in my life, I thought he got in, as we'd say, this is a stylist to photographer, get in close, get it and get out, okay? There's not tons of propping, all the stuff that's distracting to me from the food. He got in beautifully lit and got out, okay? And it's beautiful. I Thank you for saying that because our idea was we want people to, when they see a photo, feel like, they're being served at somebody's home. Yes. And so it's not about, in Latin America in particular, it's not about silverware and the candles and the flowers, yeah. the Martha Stewart syndrome. No. That I call. It's very simple. And so it's all about the food. The food is what, what makes what, you want to eat. It makes you want to eat it. Now, let me tell you, the first one I'm looking at is pasta con palta. Oh, yes. Pasta with avocado pesto. Now, I'm going to make this. Sandra, very soon, uh, especially since I live in the land of avocados here in um, Ventura. It's so simple and it looks so delicious now. And this recipe is from Chile, it says. It's your header. It is. And I love that recipe. It's one of the ones that I love teaching because people would always be surprised when they would taste it. First, they would see me get the avocado and say, we're going to make pasta with avocado. And they would like cross their eyes and said, no way am I trying that. Guacamole is the first thing that comes to mind. But this is the recipe that combines spinach and basil and 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 um, avocado and makes a pesto sort of sauce. And you serve it warm. You toss it into the hot pasta and it becomes this creamy pesto-like sauce that again accomplishes what I wanted when I said I don't want people to take a huge leap of faith. If you've had pasta with pesto, you won't be afraid to try this one. But the taste is so sublime. Yeah, I, I can tell by reading your recipe. Yeah, it's, it's I, really elegant. I'm going to make some and then I will post it and I will tag you so that you will see what my, it looks delicious, Sandra. Now, and Another one, of course, I'm not sure I can pronounce this in 
Spanish, you but it's a quick braised collard greens from Brazil. Ah. Yes, that is the cuvée. That is the, the collard greens. Yeah. Uh, when I first came to the South 30 some years ago, I was very surprised to taste the collard greens that are cooked very, very, very soft for a long time. They're delicious. I love them, especially if they have some kind of pork in them. But I had tasted the Brazilian kind of collard greens, which are quickly sauteed in oil with some garlic. And some cooks do add a piece of pork, either in sausage or bacon or pancetta or something like that. But it is a complete opposite in the dish because it's very fresh and you're really getting almost crispy collards, vibrantly green. They don't turn that grayish color. Yes. And, and yet they're both as delicious. But again, it's that thing. Anybody who's ever had collard greens will not be afraid to try this new version. It's not new to Latin America, but it's new to them. Perfectly said. You know, the first time, I mean, I Cindy and I taught in Atlanta many, many times. But one night, Gina Berry... Yes, I love Gina. Gina and who else? Bree, who's the darling food stylist that works that area. There were several people. Virginia wasn't with us that night. Someone else. Oh, Mallory. Mallory. Uh, Mallory, I love her too. I love her. Yeah. They took me to um, a great place that was hip at the moment. I don't know if it's still, this is a few years ago. But this was when you're talking about collard greens. This young man... His collard greens were delicious. They were flavorful, but the real standout was his biscuits. So when you just said, how many thousands of biscuits recipes do we see all over? And people, pictures of them, some look great, some not so great. And Gina Bear, I said, I kept saying to her, these are the best biscuits I've ever eaten. And now, Sandra, I don't know that I've ever turned a biscuit down. You know <laughs> what I mean? So I, I've eaten my fair share of biscuits. And she turned to me the way she does. She said, it's the grated butter. Ooh. Oh, she said, Denise, the butter, ha you have to grate it. That's how you get these layers. And I remember thinking, oh. <laughs> so it's what you said before, same ingredients, a little different technique. Yeah. Okay. And who is to say that I, that brings me to the point of authenticity. Uh, because I was writing about home cooked recipes, this was not a book about me or my recipes. It's no their recipes. It's the people's recipes. So I actually investigated many ways of making one dish with many, many cooks before I developed the recipe. So I got many versions, talked to many, many cooks, sometimes dozens of cooks for one recipe and would find those things that they had in common. Because what I discovered, what I learned through making this book is who is to say what authentic food is because you could have two neighbors in the same town let's say two people in Nicaragua each of them making gallo pinto which is a rice and bean dish and each of them adding different ingredients to theirs they're both authentic one is not more authentic than the other and they're both made in Nicaragua and they're they can be very different but the similarities is they have the same kind of beans the same kind of rice and they have at least the same kind of sauce in Nicaragua's case Worcestershire sauce uh, to 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 blend it together. But that doesn't mean that if you find one that adds bell peppers to it or one that adds extra garlic, it's not as authentic as the next. So what you're telling me is exactly that with biscuits or with collards or with beef or with mole, whatever it is, 
there are many different ways to peel an onion. There are very That's many ways to make brownies. They're all brownies though. That's right. And when you like something, that's what makes the difference. Do you know what I mean? That's what makes the difference. And also, and I think you're, you and I already said this, food memories, what you're used to, do you know what I mean? That's what makes you feel good inside. What, you know, it's more than just your tummy. It's feeding your soul or it's giving you comfort for so many things. Now, I never argue with grandmothers is what I say. I never argue with a grandma's recipe or a mother's recipe because that's what you remember, right? Yes. So, I interviewed people who gave me many of those old recipes that they had from even great grandmothers, you know, that have come down uh, the generations. And so each one of them also had to deal with the, the kind of ingredients they could find during a particular time in history. So all of that had to come into account in the development of certain recipes. Um, the study that I did to make this recipe, I cannot tell you 30 years of research I have so many manuscripts. I have people sent who sent me their photocopied um, index cards from their grandma's boxes. And then I have antique cookbooks that have recipes such as burn the feathers off the chicken, boil it, cook it until it's ready, season it the way you used to do it, and then it'll be ready when it's done. And I'm like, who can cook like that? I know. Having <laughs> to go find out what do they mean, the seasonings that you use, you have to find what age was that made what what years was that made in what were the ingredients that most cooks had in their kitchens and all of that went into the development of these recipes but the recipes that made it to the book are those that are still made today that gotcha. have survived through all of that and that have still remained today so that people who open the book today can cook what people in latin america are also cooking for their families at the same time i love that now the last recipe which again, I can make this and I'm excited. It is canalones de espinach. I don't know how to say spinach. Espinaca. Espinaca, espinaca con queso. Spinach yes. and cheese cannelloni. Yes. And again, From, it's in Italy, right? Yeah. Uruguay. Yes. Yes. It's fantastic. It, and recipes, not difficult. Some similar, some things I know. It's fabulous. It, it, I, I love that when you find a recipe again that you would recognize somewhere else, but they're very doable. In this case, you make the crepes, you know, separately. And yeah. every one of my recipes has steps on how to make things ahead of time and freeze or whatever. And then you make this very simple filling that can also be made a day in advance. And then you just assemble. And if you don't want to make your own crepes because you don't have time and you live in a place where you can go to the store and buy crepes that are already made, that's what you use. It's about finding convenience. One of my favorite recipes in the book is the Brazilian gnocchi de yuca. They're made with, with cassava instead of potato. And they... They taste sweet, sweeter than potato gnocchi. They're easier to make because cassava has more starch in it. So it needs less flour. So they're very, very light. But do you know that in Brazil, people can buy these already frozen in their supermarkets? So you never know. And, and that's one of the things that I've loved about visiting other countries for this book and for others is I never visit a country before or a city uh, without going to at least two markets and at least three grocery stores, like supermarkets, to see what people are using in terms of convenience food and everyday regular ingredients that they use. Because the education that you get from seeing what regular people like you and me are using to cook at home, 
is very different from the one you would get if you only go to restaurants and see what chefs are doing there. So that's what I wanted to capture in this book. And you, honey, it's, I, I can't thank you enough, Sandra. Okay. For one, sending me one, your publisher sending me one. I'm going to cook from it. Um, it's just a beautiful, beautiful book. You did an amazing job. I hope people now, how do people get in touch with you? We're going to put all Sandra's information up as we always do in the cover of the book, but your website is simply, isn't it just, uh, it's changed. It's now, oh. you know. You now go to Penguin Random House to get to me, but just Google me. But yeah. the easiest way to get in touch with me still is Instagram. Right. Uh, at, at Sandra Latinista. That's my name. And um, that's my name in all social media. And I do respond very quickly with, you know, questions or uh, comments or whatever you need. Facebook, the same. Twitter, the same name. Perfect. And I, I love people to send me photos of what they're making or questions or, or that lost recipe. My grandmother used to make this recipe. I love to find long lost recipes. Sandra, I cannot thank you enough. I wish you nothing but success with this book. You worked. It's it. You cannot not pick it up, look at it, read it without thinking this is a labor of love. Okay. This is a labor of love. And as you said, more years than we need to count. It's absolutely gorgeous. Well, everyone who listens, thank you so much. We so appreciate your comments. Um, I want to thank Cindy because Cindy keeps the train on the tracks. I want to thank Sandra for her very precious time today. And um, I'm just grateful, Sandra. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful to you and to Cindy. Thank you for having me on again. I love talking with you and thank you for what you've said about the book. I hope I hope people find it friendly, uh, very easy to use, and they find that everybody can cook Latin American food if the recipes work. It's fantastic. All right. If people have comments or questions for us, it's um, womenbeyond at icloud.com. And we do love messages. And when this broadcast um, I'm hoping that it people will reach out to you, Sandra, because it really it's it's incredible. And I only talked about three recipes, and there's like 300 recipes in this book. So thank you, everyone. Thanks again. Thank you, ladies. See you soon. Bye bye. Thank you, Sandra. You make it so easy, though, Denise. Thank you so much. I send you each a very big hug and I hope soon we can sit around the table and eat and cook together. <laughs>